Uh, we have a couple announcements before we get started this morning. One, we had a work day yesterday, and um, hey, you're already clapping. That's good. Okay, let's keep that up for the sermon, all right? I haven't even made the announcement yet. Uh, we had um, about 40% of the church family show up, so we had a really good turnout. I appreciate you all coming out. Um, in the future, we'd like to get that number up a little bit higher, but um, it was a great turnout. And I think the last two work days, we've probably gotten more done on those work days than any work day probably in the past 10 years. I'm not even exaggerating. We've gotten a ton of stuff done. So thank you to um, Jake and the deacons for overseeing that and keeping things rolling with that. Um, also, we have um, this Wednesday, we're kicking uh, back up our Reformation Wednesday which is our, uh, our prayer service and sharing a meal together. So that's usually once a month. Normally, um, it's on the, the fourth Wednesday. We're kicking it up a week early so that we don't have a super busy week the following week with the Foundations Conference. So this Wednesday, um, 7 o'clock, we'll share a meal, and then we'll spend some time praying together. That's what Reformation Wednesday. And then, as I just mentioned, um, we're just uh, about a week and a half away from our Foundations Conference which is also coming up. So that's April 30th and May 1st. Um, it's an amazing time of getting together, a fellowship of hearing some amazing speakers from around this area. And our topic, um, as we've kind of focused on this year, is unity in community. So make sure you sign up for, for each of those. The Reformation Wednesday, you can sign up in the Church Center app um, and also for the um, Foundations Conference. That sound good? Lastly, we got um, some Bible quizzers getting ready to head off to Wisconsin, and so we wanna, uh, we'd like to pray over them. I know they're taking a team, so if you're headed off to Bible quiz, and come on down because we want to pray over you as you get ready to head out with that. Are you guys heading out on uh, Tuesday or Wednesday? Wednesday, all right. We got coaches, quizzers, uh, table officials, all sorts of fun stuff. All right, we're gonna pray. You guys have an awesome time. You got, you got how many chapters? Do you got how many chapters? Do you got memorized, Cassandra? Six. Six chapters, and you guys are quizzing over. Is it Matthew? Yeah. Six chapters in the. How many verses is that? A bunch. A bunch. <laughs> That's very impressive. Close to two thousand. Two thousand total. Okay. And how many chapters do you have memorized? Three chapters, okay, so a bunch. So we could ask you any verse and any of the chapters you got memorized, and, 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 and you could do it, Yes. right? Do you want to try it right now? Yeah, sure. Okay, what chapters you got? We'll do 28. 28. 28, 19, and 20, which is actually a good one. Everyone knows that. I want 20, I want, I want, I want 28, uh, 13. <laughs> you do have 30 for a, for a quote. So, 13. This is good practice for the stage quiz that you guys are going to be making, right? Because there's, there's a little bit more pressure. You're in front of people, right? Okay, do you want, to, you want, you want 14 or 12 or you want, you want a word or you just want to do 19, 20? What? <laughs> Meg's trying to help you out over there. <laughs> so, uh, verse 13 and two. Why can't I think of <laughs> That's all right. Go to 19 and 20 because we want to hear that. 19 and 20. Okay. Uh, 
<laughs> go. There we go. In the ESV. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to teaching them okay, teaching them. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. All right, Cassandra, we won't put you on the spot, all right? I can see over there getting a little bit nervous. She was like... <laughs> all right, let's, let's pray. Father, bless these quizzers and these adults as they go out to um, have a good time to quote over your word. I pray it would be an amazing time of fellowship. I pray it would be an amazing time as they um, get to see some friends from different um, parts of Missouri and different parts of this country, um, that they would glorify you, Lord, as they're quoting your word. We ask... Lord, um, in all earnestness, that the words that they're quoting and memorizing would be buried deep in their heart and would bear fruit for many, many, many years to come, and that these words of yours that they have memorized, you would uh, use it in their lives and use it also for them to minister to other people uh, with your word and with your truth, God. Um, thanks for them. Thanks for this ministry uh, that um, you've blessed us with, God. Take them there safely. Um, bring them back, God, and uh, let us hear a good report um, the whole week for your glory. Amen. All right. Yep. Has anyone ever seen Bible quizzing in person? Okay. If you've never seen it in person... You should definitely take an opportunity to come up here. You've kind of missed your chance for, for this. But um, there is a quiz camp coming up. Which, when's the quiz camp, Steve or Sandy? July 17th. You can, you can kick off the new season. And what are, what are you all memorizing, quizzing over? Okay, Hebrews, James, and Revelation. But if you've never seen it in person, I encourage you um, to come up. Come to quiz camp. Have your, your son or daughter be a part of that. Come see them. Um, it is uh, it is just an amazing thing. It's hard, we can explain it all we want, but you kind of have to see it in person to, to get an idea of it. Um, <clears throat> and at the upper levels, it, it is crazy how um, quick the jumps are, how quick they can say the verses, and, and how many verses they have uh, memorized. So I um, encourage you, as we get more information in the next few months about Quiz Camp, to check that out. All right, we're in First Thessalonians chapter 5. Go ahead and turn there. We're going to pick it up in verse 4. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night. And those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain 
salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Let's pray. Father, bless your word today. We thank you for the privilege of reading it. We thank you for the privilege of hearing it. Lord, we want to be um, disciples of you. We want to be disciples of your word, and we want to be doers, not just hearers, but we want to be doers. So, Lord, let us put into practice the things that we hear today for your glory. Amen. We kind of have a a modern-day Tower of Babel uh, going on before our very eyes in this country. Um, I would say there's a fight over the dictionary. Everyone is speaking, but not everyone is making sense. And, and people can say the same exact words and mean two different things. You might encounter this um, if you've ever tried talking with uh, a Mormon or Jehovah Witness. They can use the very same terms we do, yet mean completely different things. I've even had Mormons tell me they believe in the Trinity, uh, which they don't. But we also see this in the secular world when it comes to definitions. Um, you know, with the Tower of Babel, uh, you needed not just a dictionary, but a lexicon, a thesaurus, and a few other books. But guess what? All the books in the world wouldn't fix the Babel problem. Why? Because it wasn't just about words. What was the Tower of Babel about? It was about power, influence, might, strength idolatry, godlessness. And we have a Tower of Babel going on right before us. And the ultimate question is, whose word will rule? Whose word? Will it be God's word defining things and telling us what is truth? Or will it be man's word defining things and telling us what is truth? Because in the culture wars, that's what the fight is is about whose definition rules. I mean, think about it. Why do some people go crazy when it's asserted there's only two genders? Because you're not following their dictionary. Plain and simple. Why the need for for precision? Because we want to make sure that the main things are the clear things, and we want to make sure that the main things are clearly and precisely understood and maintained. Friends, our words, they matter. And our definitions matter. And before our very eyes, we have a flipping of words and a flipping of definitions. Look at Isaiah chapter 5. We're coming back to 1 Thessalonians, so hold your place there. In Isaiah 5, verse 20, it says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And friends, that's what we're seeing happen before our very eyes. Evil is being called good. Words are being changed before our very eyes. Maybe you remember the Supreme Court 
confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett. If you didn't hear about the dictionary debacle there, let me just give you a uh, catch up to date on it. When she was asked regarding the, the Obergefell um, Hodges Supreme Court decision regarding the legalization of uh, so-called same-sex marriage in the United States, she uh, was asked what her approach would be in future cases, and she said, I have never discriminated on the basis of sexual preference and would not discriminate on the basis of sexual preference. And one senator uh, rebuked her right there and said that that term, sexual preference, was an offensive term. Now, uh, within a few days after that, videos popped up everywhere of, of politicians on, on both sides using that term um, and, and it being perfectly acceptable. But that senator rebuked her, and Merriam-Webster's online dictionary, the very next day, changed the definition of preference and added as one of them, offensive. You can look it up. It's online, easy to find, um, and they don't doubt it. They even tried to defend it. Friends, it's not a matter when we talk about things like this, when we talk about morality. It's not a, it's not a matter of whether morality will be imposed. You realize that. The question is always, whose morality will be imposed? It makes me think when the English uh, were in India 150, 200 years ago. You know, when husbands died in India, uh, the wife was burned on the husband's funeral pyre. They even have a term for it, sati. That was their culture. And the British were there, and they put a stop to it. And the people of India said, well, we have a tradition. When the husband dies, we burn the wife. And the English magistrate said, we have a tradition too. We kill people who do that. <laughs> There's two different moralities. Was it wrong for the British to impose their beliefs on another society? Not when it's a moral issue. Not when it's a moral issue. So there's a fight over truth. A fight over the dictionary means there's a fight over truth. And if you can change the definition of words, then you can define what's true and what's not true. What's orthodox and what's heresy. So we need to be alert, just like Paul tells us here in 1 Thessalonians. Why should you want to be alert? Let me give you four reasons. First, so that you're not devoured. Look at 1 Peter chapter 5. Peter tells us in verse 8, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Think about that for a minute, friends. The devil's prowling around, and he wants to catch someone off guard. He wants to catch someone who's not alert. And what's the imagery? When we think of being devoured, I mean, that's like totally shaken, totally taken and destroyed. I mean, it's just not like a little bite out of you. No, it's, it's devoured. That gives the, the imagery of like complete 
destruction. So Peter's telling them, be sober mindful. Why? Because, friends, the devil, his appetite is never satisfied. It's never satisfied. And he is always prowling around looking to devour not just someone, but you. He's looking to devour you. And if you don't think you're on Satan and his minions' radar, then, then he's got you fooled. Because he looks to take out each believer in whatever way he can. So we need to be alert so we're not devoured. We also need to be alert so we're not deceived. I remember in the early days of email, maybe you got this email, I still get them sometimes, about um, some Nigerian prince who has all this money in his bank account and he needs to get it to the U.S., and he needs my help to put it in my account for a short time, and in exchange, he'll give me like 10%. <clears throat> I was so disappointed when it wasn't true. <laughs> but we want to be alert so that we're not de- deceived. Now, no one ever thinks they're deceived. Why? Because if you thought you were deceived, you'd stop being deceived, right? You'd stop believing the thing that you were deceived about. But friends... All of us are prone to being deceived in areas. Each person might have a particular weakness in their life, but we're prone to deception in that. We need to shore those, those things up. But we are prone to deception. Listen, if, think about this for a moment. If, if Eve, in her unfallen state, can be deceived, then so can we. All right? In fact, how much more so can we? So we want to be alert so that we're not devoured. We want to be alert so we're not deceived. Uh, We want to be alert so we're not caught off guard. Now, there's a difference between being deceived and being caught off guard. Jesus talks about it in Mark 13. Look at there briefly. And in Mark 13, he's talking about the end times, which goes well since we kind of wrapped up end times last week. And at the end of of part of his exhortation to the disciples, he says in verse 22 of Mark 13, For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform signs and wonders to lead astray, if possible, the elect. But be on guard. I have told you all things beforehand. Well, so be on guard, he's telling them why. Because I've, I've told you these things that you can be looking out for. Where are those things found for us? In Jesus' words. Where are Jesus' words? Right here. Right here. So be on guard. And he goes on a little bit further down. Verse 32. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard. Keep awake. For you do not know when the time will come. Then he goes on. It's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he suddenly come and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. I mean, how many times in these short little verses 
is he exhorting and commanding his disciples to be alert, to stay awake, to make sure they're not caught off guard. And how does he accomplish that? Through instruction, through giving them things to look for, through making sure they're grounded in his very words. So that's the third thing. Why should you want to be alert so you're not caught off guard? Jesus is coming back, friends. He's coming back. And he's going to catch some people off guard. That's the point of this passage. But we can be caught off guard in in a myriad of things in our life. All sorts of things. So we want to make sure that we are alert. Finally, we want to be alert so that we can warn others. If you're not alert, you can't warn others. If you don't see the wolves approaching, guess what? You can't warn others about the wolves. You can't warn them about the imminent attack. And Jude, the book of Jude, he says, save others by snatching them out of the fire. I mean, that's what we want to do, friends. We want to do that with the gospel, but we also want to do that with our brothers and sisters in Christ. If we see someone walking in error or walking towards error, it is a loving thing to warn them about the catastrophe that awaits them. So we want to warn others. We can only do that if we ourselves are alert to what is going on. That's why we should want to be alert. But let's talk about four ways to be alert. One, we need to know the signs of the times. That doesn't mean we just watch the news 24-7. Some people do that. Um, That'll put you in a bad mood real quick. And that'll get you depressed real quick. Um, I've limited my news intake in part because of those things. But we need to know the signs of the times. Look at Matthew 16. He says in verse 3, And in the morning it will be stormy today. Oh, let's start in verse, in verse 1, sorry. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He, asked, he answered them, When it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. Isn't that interesting how he puts it? I mean, you can figure out the weather, all this general knowledge that might help you know when to plant your crops, when to get your animals inside and covered, but you don't know how to interpret the signs of the times. Now, what's the obvious uh, context there? Here, Jesus, the Son of God, standing right before them, and they can't even figure it out. And they're wanting all sorts of signs. And, and, and God's already given them sign after sign after sign after sign. But what? They're deceived. They're deceived. It's right there in front of them. They literally have the Son of God talking right to them. And they don't even recognize Him for who He is. Miracles. He's doing miracles. He's doing amazing, great teaching. And they can't even see it for what it is. That is deception, my friends. That is what can happen to us if we are not careful. We can be blinded 
to the truth. So the first thing we want to make sure when we're talking about these things is we want to know the signs of the times. Look at 1 Chronicles 12. Here it's, it's given and talking about different people who joined David, some of them the mighty men. And it's going through this list of people who, who came to join David. But notice that in all this list, in verse 32, we get this interesting little note. It's going through the different tribes and who came to support David. It says, of Issachar, men who had understanding of the times to know what Israel ought to do. So they had understanding of the times for why? So that Israel, they knew what Israel needed to do. Wouldn't you want some, some men of Issachar in your life to help you out? To help guide you? To know what Israel ought to do. Friends, if you don't see the tidal wave coming, there's a tidal wave coming, um, you're too busy building sandcastles on the beach. And you're looking down at the sand when you should be looking up towards the horizon. Because the tidal wave is coming and we need to shore ourselves up. Second, we need to study the Word. Look at Acts 17. In Acts 17, Paul starts out in Thessalonica and then he ends up going to Berea. Verse 11 of Acts 17. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And just notice a couple things about them when we talk about studying the word. They received the word how? With all eagerness. With all eagerness. And, and how often did they do it? Daily. We need to make sure we're taking in the Word in all, in all different shapes and sizes and forms. Reading it, we can hear it. Uh, it doesn't matter how long our commute is. There's, n- there's never an excuse for us to get into the Word just a little bit each day. Okay? With, with all the technology we got, we got a Bible app. You can just hit that little... Sideways triangle, hit play, and you got voice coming out. Listen to the word. There's there's great teachings and, and that you can access through podcasts. You could hear sermon after sermon after sermon. You can hear people talk about different biblical topics from a biblical worldview. We want to ingest that daily. Daily. So they examined the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. They wanted to be like the men of Issachar. They wanted to know the times and know how Israel ought to act. Next, we want to pray. Look at Ephesians. So Paul's talking about the whole armor of God here. 
And right towards the end, in verse 18, he says, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me. So praying when? All times. How? In the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. And then notice, notice what's linked, friends, with prayer here. To that end, keep alert. Keep alert with all perseverance. So, I mean, the idea is, is, is our prayer aids our alertness. And you're praying and you're praying and the Lord brings things to your mind. The Lord alerts you to things. The Lord makes you more steadfast in standing against these things. The Lord opens your spiritual eyes to perhaps areas where you've been deceived. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance. With all perseverance. Okay, so it's not just like a one-time thing. It's something that we're working at, we're working at, we don't give up, we don't give up, we don't give up. And finally, worship. Friends, worship helps us. It helps us to stay alert. I don't know about you, but God has spoken to me during worship numerous times. He's pointed out my sin. He's encouraged me. He's made clear certain things that I've been praying about. But He uses worship. And we will always worship something or someone. I mean, we're all worshipers. Everyone, believer or unbeliever, is a worshiper of something or someone. Maybe some things or someones. We can have a list, sadly. But worship directs our attention heavenward and reminds us of who is in control and how great He is. And it reminds us we've got to set our hearts on things above. We've got to set our heart on the cross. It reminds us where we need to be at the throne, sitting right there where God is, in His presence. Look at Psalm 59. In verse 16 of Psalm 59, he says, But I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning. For you have been to me a fortress and a refuge in the day of my distress. Now that sing aloud, Justice kind of you know, mentioned it at the beginning in the call to worship about making a, a joyful noise. Um, that Hebrew word, the Hebrew word there means to emit a tremulous and stridulous sound, like a ringing cry, all right? I will sing aloud of your steadfast love. That's that hesed love that God has for his covenant children. And then look what he says, though. So he's singing. He's singing of God's strength. He's singing of his steadfast love. And then it says, for you have been to me a fortress and a refuge in the day of my distress. Friends, worship is a great reminder of, of how great God is. And it can kind of put us back in our place and remind us that we need to continue to trust Him. That we need to continue to walk with Him. And that He has all things under His control. It's a good reminder for us. 
So when you're not listening to the Bible app or podcasts, I mean, then listen to the worship music. You know, the, the, you need a steady diet of these things. I, I don't know about you, but I need a steady diet of these things. And I want a steady diet of these things. I want things that are pleasing to the Lord, that are glorifying to the Lord. Worship helps set things aright in our own heart. Ultimately, it's not for us. But we get many blessings from worship. Many, many blessings. And this is one of them. Back in Thessalonians, we see a stark contrast between believers and unbelievers. Listen to the description of what he says with unbelievers. He says, darkness, sleep, surprised, night, and drunk. And in contrast, you can contrast that word for word with what he says about believers. Instead of darkness, there's light. Instead of sleep, there's awake. Instead of surprised, or caught off guard, there's alert. Instead of night, there's day. And instead of drunk, there's sober. That's a stark contrast. If someone knows you well enough, they should never have to say, hmm, I wonder whether they're a believer. Because there should be a stark contrast in actions and words. That means we need to make sure that if we have sin in our life, we root it out. And guess what, friends? We have sin in our life. Each one of us. Everyone has sin, and it can be rooted out. And if you don't think you got sin, well, you're, you're probably back in that deception part. <laughs> All right? And you need to pray for the Lord to open your eyes. But we're not of the night, okay? We're not of the night. So drunkenness has no place. And wickedness has no place. And licentiousness has no place. And, and pornography, it has no place. And foul language has no place. And harshness has no place. None of those things have a place in the life of the believer. If those things are present or other ungodly things, then you need to root them out. Sin is a real foe. But let me remind you of something. It's a defeated foe. Okay? It's a real foe but it's defeated. So, we want to make sure that we're sober and alert. And if ever there was a time, it's now. It's like, you know, the alarm going off, you know, alert, alert, you know, like in Star Trek or something like that. Like this, you know, the ship's going to blow up or whatever. <clears throat> and, and some people, they just yell alert, you know, every time the leaves rustle. Okay? But, Here's the thing. We, can, we want to be alert because things can happen so slowly at times that you miss what's occurring. I mean, you know, who would have thought a year ago that a pastor in Canada could go to jail for having a church service? And, and that's what happened recently with uh, Pastor James Coates uh, in Canada and his province they were limiting uh, service to 15% of capacity. For our church, that'd be about, I think, like 40 people, maybe 45. <clears throat> that wouldn't be as big a problem for us because we've been blessed with a pretty big sanctuary. His church is much bigger, and every seat was filled every single week. So you'd be telling basically about 80 to 85% of the people you can't come to church. They obeyed for a season and then felt 
for various reasons, they needed to meet in person again. And they ended up putting him in jail for a month. Without a court appearance. With no bail set. Simply for having a church service against the government's orders. They finally let him out. They promised to let him out if he promised to not meet again. And he's like, I'm not promising that. They finally let him out, even though he didn't promise anything. Um, and, and guess what the local governing officials did? They literally built a fence around his church. I'm not talking like a little nice white picket fence. I'm talking like a 10 or 15 foot fence all the way around their property and posted police officers so that no one could access the property. You want to talk about an overreach of the civil authorities? That's an overreach. So they built this fence around his church, not letting anyone in. What did they do the next Sunday? They met somewhere else. Underground. Did you think you would live to see the day that, that a church would have to go underground in Canada? In Canada. The tidal wave is coming. Now look back at First Thessalonians where he says in verse 6 to be sober. Oftentimes in the New Testament, almost always, it carries with it the metaphorical sense of exercising moral self-control. So he's not just saying, oh, don't get drunk. That's, that's part of it, but it's more than that. It's moral self-control and self-restraint. It's having clear thinking in the face of adversity or danger. And we have to realize, if we're going to be sober, if we're going to think soberly, if we are going to have self-control and self-restraint, that will look odd and different to the rest of the world. And friends, the difference is day and night between believers and unbelievers. You think differently, you reason differently, you see things differently, you talk differently, you act differently, and you should. Your world, if God has come into your life, if Christ has redeemed you, if you've been covered by the blood of Jesus, your world has been turned upside down. So guess what? Your view of the world should be right side up. And your thinking should look backwards to some people because you're thinking in a way that's not possible for them. It's really not. They don't have the Spirit of God. What does Romans say? The unspiritual or the unnatural man cannot understand the things of God. Friends, they need the light of the glory of God to shine in their hearts, to awaken them from their sleep. And God wants to use us to do that. And here's what I want to say, because we get a lot of, of imperatives, we get a lot of commands in these verses We're supposed to keep awake. We're supposed to be sober. Let us not sleep. That's a command. Don't sleep. Don't get drunk. He tells us again, verse 8, be sober. So we're getting all these imperatives. But here's the thing I want to emphasize. Our position affects our practice. 
Our position affects our practice. What do I mean by that? It means like we are position when, when God sees us, we have a position in Christ. We have been set in Him. We have a union with Him that cannot be broken. We're united with Him. And God has transferred us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. All right? And there's, there's, there's no transfers back. If you've been transferred, the transfer is complete. What does that mean? That, that's our position. But guess what? Our position affects our practice, meaning the things we do. If you are a, a president of some corporation, that, that's going to affect the things you do, right? Your position affects your practice. Well, it should be the same for a believer. And it is. Our position as believers affects the things we do. It affects our practice. What we are is what we should do. So the moral exhortation here finds its roots in the previous work of God in their lives. When Paul's commanding, he's doing it from a position of who the Thessalonians already are. He's not trying to tell them to be something that they can't be. He's saying because you're in Christ, because you've been redeemed, because you've been bought by the blood of the Lamb, because of that, because your name is written in the Lamb's book of life and it can't be erased, because of that, then I want you to do these things. So their moral exhortation finds its roots in the previous work of God in their lives. They have been made children of the light and children of the day, as he mentions, via their salvation. And now they are to act according to that new state of being. Think about this. The gift of grace that God gives each of us, it includes within it the call to obedience. He gives us the gift of grace, but included in that gift, we have a call to obey. Since the imperative is integral to the indicative, the commands are integral to who we are, to our position, the summons of Christian ethics becomes this. Act what you are. You're a believer? Then act like it. And I think at times, we can fight disillusionment. In our own walk, maybe in our own frustration with how we are walking with the Lord or not, we got to wipe away disillusionment because that's truly from the enemy. There is no doubt who wins in the end. All right, I don't know about you, but I read the end, and Jesus wins. Okay, you can read the end too. It's interesting, on one occasion, the Roman emperor, you know, roughly 2,000 years ago, Julian the Apostate, he told the people of Alexandria they could choose another bishop for themselves. They had a bishop at the time. You might have heard of him. His name was Athanasius. Remember him, the guy who stood strong for the Trinity? When everyone was against him, <clears throat> everyone, oh, Athanasius, the world is against you. What was his famous reply? Then I am against the world. So Julian the Apostate, one of the worst Roman emperors against Christians, you know, here's, here's the government, right? They're not happy with Athanasius. So Julian the Apostate 
tells the people of Alexandria where Athanasius was the bishop, uh, you can choose another bishop, but, but Athanasius has to go. Yeah, I mean, so um, over-exerting power uh, mixed with supposed kindness. Uh, we'll let you choose the next one. Athanasius encouraged his friends by telling them that Julian was but a little cloud that was going to soon pass over. Think about that. A little cloud that was soon to pass over. And think about this. This confidence from an early church father, like that can provide us with a a bit of encouragement in troubled times. Because we're in our day confronted with uh, a whole bunch of challenges. From state and local governments that have gone rogue to big tech censoring believers left and right and a range of other tedious troubles in between. All of them are but a little cloud. They will pass. They will pass. Jesus' words will never pass away. These things are of the earth. They're earthly. They're going to pass. It'll be over before they know it. They're just little clouds passing along. They might do some damage. They might rain down some hail in the meantime, but they will pass away. In the end, God's still going to be standing there. Jesus is still going to be next to him. And friends, if you've trusted in Christ as your Savior, you're going to be with him. You won't pass away. You won't be like that cloud. Will we suffer in the meantime? Absolutely. We saw it a few weeks ago. It's guaranteed to have suffering in the life of the believer. If you're going to trust in Christ, you will have suffering. Let's not water it down. There was a lady I read about recently. She had uh, some form of encephalitis, and she was a speaker, a Christian speaker, but she kept up her speaking engagements. Even though she was bound to a wheelchair, she kept up her speaking engagements. Many, many people prayed for her healing. Famous pastors, all sorts of people. Nothing ever happened. One time she spoke, and a three-week-old Christian came up and was like, can I pray for you? And that believer prayed, and instantly that lady was healed. Think about that. Sometimes we water down the impact we can have. Sometimes we think, oh, who, 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 little me? Who's little me? Who am I to do such a thing? And this lady, she learned to suffer well. Friends, read the book of Martyrs. You ever read it? I mean, it starts literally from the beginning of of early Christian history with the 12 disciples and how they were martyred and goes throughout. It's um, very sobering. You should read it because guess what? You might be next. Many saints on earth, many, many saints on earth are unknown. We'll never hear about them. People doing amazing works of God. We might not even define it as amazing works of God, but they're doing amazing works of God. But you know what? I I don't care if I'm known here on earth. I care if I'm known in heaven. I care if God knows me. Who cares about other people knowing about the works that are going on? I care about the works that God knows that I'm doing, not for some reward, but he knows me because I'm his so don't get caught up in the things of this world. I want, to, I want to be popular in heaven. 
okay? Because Jesus knows my name. I don't care about being popular on earth. Who cares about that? Listen to a small little book written. It was called, it's called The Loveliness of Christ. Very rich book. It says, What God layeth on, let us suffer. Okay, whatever God puts on us, let's bear it. He says, For some have one cross, some seven, some ten, some half a cross. Yet all the saints have whole and full joy. And seven crosses have seven joys. That's pretty good. And friends, when we think about Jesus and his life, I mean, Jesus' life was a life of service. His death was, was a ministry. It was a service. His return is a ministry. It's a service. And he's our example to follow. There was no ministry too small for him. I mean, sometimes you're reading in the Gospels, and you're like, oh, he stopped and did this thing, and you're like, wow, that's interesting. Just like this small little thing he did. There was no ministry too unpopular for Jesus to do. He dealt with the whole range of people. And he never said, think about this, he never said, that's below me, or I'm not doing that. He wasn't concerned about the crowds or the masses. What was he concerned about? Pleasing his Father in heaven. Right? The temptation of the servant, of us, is to see the other servants not serving and then get frustrated. Or to see the other servants serving a little and then wonder why they aren't serving more. Did Jesus ever do that? He never did that. His focus was on serving the Father. His example spurred his disciples on to action. And, And that's where we're at. We're called to serve God through an alertness, through a soberness. But we're not called to be the monitor or tracker of other people's service. Now, you can guilt people into service, but it's not true service, and it'll be short-lived. But you can pray for others. That's one thing you can do. You can pray for your own heart to change and give grace to others. Second, you've got to realize more service happens than you're aware of. Many people don't want their works to be done before men. And people in here are doing all sorts of ministry and work inside and outside of this church. Most of you never hear about or see. I know of someone in in this congregation that's helping an elderly widow. Doesn't even go to this church. Just helping them with their taxes because she doesn't even know how to do them. Would you call that a ministry or service? And is looking for an opportunity and taking an opportunity to share the gospel with that lady. That's ministry. Third, we've got to pray for God to give, to give us servants' hearts and other people's servants' hearts. But in the midst of this, in the midst of the tidal wave coming, in the midst of our culture changing, think of what Jesus' simple words were. We are the light. We are the salt. Are, are we doing that? Because guess what? I mean, have you ever tasted like a really, really, like way too salty piece of meat? Like it kind of can catch you off guard that first bite. Now, <clears throat> salt back then was a preservative. It's supposed to preserve. What do we want to do? We're not. We don't want to preserve some like 1980s culture or 1950s culture or Puritan culture. We want a society that reflects the goodness and glory of God. That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to be light because we have people, people that we know, people that we know very dearly 
people that we live next to, people that we spend Easter and Christmas with, and they're going to hell. And we want to be light to them. We want to be light and we want to be salt to them. And friends, let's, let's just, that's where I'm saying let's not be disillusioned because God's doing a work. And just because he's not necessarily doing something through you, maybe because of disobedience, maybe because you've just gotten lazy, maybe because you've gotten disillusioned. But friends, you know, Aslan is on the move, as C.S. Lewis says. God is moving. Even if you look across, again, we're looking down at the sand instead of looking out on the horizon. You look at what God is doing across this world. He's doing some amazing things. Did you know 80% of all the movements of large groups of Muslims becoming Christians? If you look back throughout the last 2,000 years of history, when, when, did, when were basically their Muslim revivals where large groups of them got saved? Did you know 80% have happened in the last three decades? Okay, so, I mean, God is redeeming people. He's redeeming people. He's redeeming people. And, and, the, and the state can try to snuff out the candle of God's church. It can try to knock over that lampstand. But the church will prevail. Why? Because God will prevail. And he never leaves his children. He doesn't leave them. He doesn't forsake them. He doesn't leave them on their own. So listen carefully for a moment, friends. Can you hear that? Is that's the trumpet of God. And it's being tuned and tested. Are you ready for it to truly blow at the last trumpet call of God? Because it is very near that time when Christ will come back to claim his own. We must, we must, we must persevere. Whether it's today, next week, next month, we must, we've we got to make it. Next year, Ten years. You know, I, I was a runner, and, and I, I still am, but I was a runner in high school. And I had different strategies and even some basic principles. But one of my basic principles in running was regardless of how tired I was, regardless of how exhausted I was, regardless of how horrible I felt, I would never stop running. I never stopped. That was just my principle I even try to keep it today. So far, I still have. But I, I don't stop. Even if I'm like still at like, uh, that's really not running. That's more like jogging or more like walking. <laughs> I still go. That was, that was, that was, that was just my thing. <clears throat> but friends, that's how we need to be in our Christian life. It's a race, Right? And let's never get to the point where we stop running the race. Yeah, we might slow down at times. We might even get tripped up. I've done that before. It's not pretty. I end up pretty scraped up. Twisted ankles and different things. But let's keep running. Let's keep running. Run the race. Run the race. How do we run it? With perseverance. How do we run it? To win. That's what it says. One of my favorite verses, 1 Corinthians 9. Run the race to obtain it. We're running for Jesus. And friends, that 
you know, if you've run different races, maybe most of you probably haven't. But there's all sorts of different courses. In some courses, the ones that I really don't prefer that much is like you come around the corner and there's the end. Because you didn't really have time to prep for it. You didn't really have time to give it your all right at the end with everything you had. But I'm telling you, like, we are at that corner and we're about to turn and there's going to be that tape that we're running towards to cross the finish line. So let's run well. You're going to have an entire eternity to rest up and, and do whatever you need to do after you've run well. you got all that time. But until then, Jesus has us on this race. And we want to run this race for his glory. We want to run this race with perseverance. And we want to run it, and we don't want to stop. We stop. That finish line is the day on this earth we breathe our last. And that day is written in stone for each one of us. None of us know it. But there is a day that God has appointed for each one of us to breathe our last. It will probably come for every single one of us much sooner than we hoped. And so we better prepare and we better be ready. And we better make sure the day we breathe our last that we are still running that race. That we cross the finish line. What did Paul say towards the end of his life? I have run the race. I have fought the good fight. Let's be able to say that. Not because of who we are, because we're some oh special believer or Christian. or No, because of what God's done in us. Because we have a Holy Spirit that helps us to take one more step when we don't want to, and one more step when we don't want to, and one, one more lap around that track when we don't want to. Why? Because we want to remain faithful to the end. We want to persevere to the end. We want to cross it into glory and be with Jesus forever. Let's pray. Father, I do ask that we would run. We would run well. I ask God that we would be alert and awake in our walk with you. Open up our eyes to areas where we're deceived. Open up our eyes to areas where we're falling short. Help us to be alert, to be sober, to be awake. To be children of the light. To be children of the day. And Lord, help us to speak truth to this dying world. A world that desperately needs you. Be with us, Father, each step of the way. Whatever come, whatever might come, prepare us for it. And let us look to you for the hope of salvation. Let us look to you and trust. Trust in you and in your Son.